Hell Crafts was a flight attendant, mother, and friend, but she'll go down in history as the first murder case to be tried without a body in Connecticut. We are your hosts, Sherry Ferreira and Helen Allen. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Helen Lork Nielsen was born in July of 1947 in Denmark. She grew up in a small village north of Denmark, and she spent most of her youth learning and just falling in love with languages. She was one of those people who would soak in a new language and could just like take it up, learn it, and just talk to anyone about it. And this made her passionate about traveling, leading her to a career as a flight attendant. Yeah, that's literally an ideal job for someone who loves to travel and talk to people. Right? Like, she's perfect for it. Mm -hmm. So when Pan Am World Airways was looking for a stewardess in, like, the Copenhagen area, she knew it was something she would just thrive in. So she would be chosen, like, one of eight out of 200 applicants and, like, got the job and she was picked. So she went to Miami for training courses. While she was there, she was also living at a motel with lots of other employees, so like flight attendants and pilots. So she was able to make a lot of friends, both male and female, which is where she met Richard Crafts, and he would end up changing her life forever. Yeah, let's hear about this <laughs> Richard Crafts. <laughs> no, so it's, he's crazy. So he's this like 31-year-old pilot who was described as scruffy, 5'8", and ordinary, but he was a playboy, I guess, and was never seen without a woman. He only dated stewardesses, probably because he was always around them and, like, would charm them with stories about him being in the CIA and how he fought in, like, Indochina, which I don't know how much truth there is to that, but it was just his Emma with the ladies. Okay, Sherry is being very kind right now, but the Pan Am World article that we got a lot of this info on really did Richard dirty, they say, and I quote, standing just five foot eight with a medium frame he seemed rather ordinary <laughs> like and they call him like rough around the edges and they literally say he wore his dark brown hair in an unkempt style that some women found appealing like they may as well say like yeah he's not for everyone no they politely just went in on him and you know we're not mad at that we're not mad at all but he does meet hella crafts and she ends up getting pregnant in 1975 so they get married right after they find out and they settle down in Newtown, Connecticut. Right. It kind of sounds like, and Richard even says it himself, but they get married because of her pregnancy. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happens. And obviously that's not a great foundation to build a marriage off. It works for some, but this marriage was known to be pretty strained from the start. Um, Richard had a love for guns that sort of freaked hell out. I mean, same here, girl. And she was seen in public a few times with bruises that were not properly explained. Her friends also just got very bad vibes from Richard, and they weren't afraid to make it known to his face, which is like the best friends you could have. Yeah. And Richard is just like the type of guy who is so power hungry, too. Like, I read that he controlled all of the finances and that he just, like, gave her no agency or say in anything. He was able to spend his money however he wanted, and the money that she did have in her possession always, like, ended up having to go towards the house and the bills. I mean, that just sounds like something, like, this type of guy would do. Like, I fully have a picture of this in my head. 
And another thing he does, and he also becomes an auxiliary police officer that wasn't even paying him, but apparently he took it very seriously. So I feel like we're really starting to get an idea of who he is. Yeah, no, I'm not done. Um, this guy, <laughs> I can't with this guy. This no, power trip needs to be talked about in depth. Like, okay. I'm going to read directly from the article because it literally, it just like perfectly paints the picture of how weird this dude is. Yeah, like break this down for me, yeah. please. Okay, so, quote. In 1982, despite his responsibilities with Eastern and his house seemingly in need of constant repair, Crafts becomes an auxiliary police officer in Newtown. Although he was not paid for his time with the police department, he took his job very seriously. Crafts would frequently hang around the police station, even when he was off duty, and sometimes responded to police calls without authorization. In 1986, he was hired as a police officer in a nearby town of Southbury. His salary was $7 an hour, far beneath his pay as an airline pilot. And he paid his own way for expensive training seminars that gave instructions on police procedures. Crafts performed his police duties with a strange fervor and even purchased a 1985 Ford Crown Victoria, the same type of car the Connecticut State Police used. He outfitted it at his own cost with multiple radios, antennas, police lights, and a siren. Okay, I mean, just stop it there. Because I'm just like, what what the Yeah, what is he doing? Why is he spending all his money on being, trying to make himself a legit police officer? Like, it's not going to happen. Stop trying to make Fetch happen. I'm done. And it's just another classic story of a guy who's just desperately seeking power wherever he can get it. And you know what? Since he has the funds, he's going for it full force. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if it means getting paid $7 an hour, it's just crazy to me that you'd go through all that trouble like i literally read that his salary as a pilot was three figures so what in the world was he doing getting seven dollars an hour and then spending his own money to just like be in charge of people be in a position of authority like what the fuck i know honestly like i can't even wrap my head around the level of narcissistic like (laughs) no it's just crazy fully it's to the point where he was just selfish and still having affairs during their marriage and just really made everything about him. So there was a consistent number on the phone bill that Richard was calling. And Hella even found Christmas presents that he bought for other women. And at this point, I think Hella has just tolerated his BS for, I don't know if it's for appearances, her kids. And she probably has a number of other good reasons just trying to make the marriage work. Mm -hmm. But in the fall of 1986, she hires a divorce attorney and a PI to gather evidence about his infidelity. She also has a conversation with one of her divorce lo- divorce lawyers, which I think is pretty important because she stresses to the lawyer and says, if I were to ever go missing, it's not an accident. Intense. Let that mm-hmm. sink in. And the divorce was drawn up later on November 11th, but the papers were never served. So come November 18th, 1986... Hella landed in New York after attending a flight from Frankfurt, Germany. Her and two other flight attendants drove to Newtown to drop off Hella, and it would be the last time that she was seen alive. So on the night of November 18th, Dawn Marie Thomas, the Crafts live-in nanny and au pair, testified that she was working at a McDonald's in Danbury 20 minutes away until about 2 a.m. That night was stormy and the Crafts house lost power, so 
Richard woke up dawn very early with the kids and had them go to Richard's sister's house in Westport, which is, tw- which is 40 minutes away. He goes back to Newtown for the day and picks them all up later that same evening. So obviously Hella is nowhere to be seen during all of this. And when Richard picks the kids up and Dawn up, they're like wondering, like, where is mom? Um, and Richard just tells them that Hella had left for Denmark to be with her mother, who is sick. Oh, and <laughs> Richard had a bunch of stories when it came to where Hella was. He claimed that she was on another flight, which was not possible as a flight attendant because you're not allowed to go on flights back to back like that without a proper resting period. Right. Then he told people she was visiting her mother in Denmark and her mother eventually came out saying that wasn't true at all. So then he told people she was in Florida or the Canary Islands visiting a friend. Like, I don't know too much about lying, but like, just get your story straight. Or it's like, a lot. I'm sorry, but what's there's like a difference between being in Florida or the Canary yeah. Islands. Yeah. Like, <laughs> He straight up, they were like, oh, so like, where's Hella? And he's like, oh, like Florida or the Canary Islands. And it's like, what, did you yeah. forget to write it down? I don't. Wh- <laughs> yeah, like there's a mean? clear difference Either between or? them. <laughs> I don't get it. So crazy. So a few days later, Dawn spotted a big stain on the carpet of Richard and Hella's bedroom floor. The carpet was subsequently removed by Richard and the bedroom was redone, bedding and everything. Um, Hella wasn't reported missing until December 1st. And basically, he tells the police that they had an argument. She left and just never returned. So Hella's friends come forward and tell the police that she's either in danger or something far worse. And she and her friends tell the police that she allegedly told them that Richard was dangerous and her life was at stake. So they were just spilling the truth to them. Good friends. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the police know Richard as a nice guy who's just like a bit introverted. And he himself was a police officer, so they really don't have anything to go on. And they, you know, just have this clear image of him. So truly, they have to consider that Hella is a grown woman who may have walked away from her life. And they're sort of accepting that rather than the story the friends are telling them. And to us, it's obviously clear that Richard killed Hella. And at this point, we're just going to, like, break down how the day went based on what we know. Right. So according to current archives, um, prosecutors said Richard Crafts bought a large freezer on November 17th, 1986. This is, like, the type of freezer that someone who, like, hunts big animals would own. So this is, like, something that Richard just, like, didn't really do. So red flag number one. Mm-hmm. And red flag number two was on November 20th. So a snowplow driver claimed that he saw Richard driving around Newtown and Southbury. And for people who aren't familiar with the area, there are towns that basically border each other. And there's, like, the small little bridge connecting them. So he was seen using a wood chipper at the Silver Bridge. And when confronted about what he was doing, Richard claimed that he was clearing limbs that fell onto his property and after an assessment assessment of both scenes no limbs were found and mind you this is one day after the snowstorm that put many people in newtown out of power so i'll let you guys decide how likely it is that making wood chips were at the top of this man's list for the day like everything's covered in snow why would he need wood yeah, chips right now at this minute his lies are just it's getting just worse ridiculous. and worse Obviously, at this point, the police are starting to feel a little suspicious of the guy. So the police start interviewing people who were close to Hella and find that Richard's stories have not exactly all lined up. Like we said before, he had told people that he was 
that she was visiting her mother in Denmark. When they contacted Hella's mom, she's like, I'm not even sick. And they're like, (laughs) okay. So yeah, she's not even sick. So I don't even know why that was like the first lie he thought of. Like really, when you're you're trying to lie, you should keep it a little closer to the truth so that you just don't look like a babbling idiot. He's just a bad liar. He's just a bad liar. Um, eventually, I don't know, I guess he, like, gives up and just tells people, like, yeah, no, I I actually have no clue where she is. So now police have, like, reason enough to look into what exactly Richard was doing on the days of Hella's disappearance. So they look into his financials, and they find that he rented the wood chipper and a large truck just one day after Hella was last seen. A day before she was last seen, on November 17th, he bought that freezer, um, so police go to the nanny, Don Marie Thomas, to find out what she might know. And it turns out that Don was working a shift at McDonald's the night before the storm and didn't arrive home until 2 a.m., which right. she promptly went to bed after and didn't get the chance to see Richard or Hella. The next morning, like we said, she was woken up early and just brought to Westport from Richard, probably being frantic and not anyone to see what he did. And at this point, Dawn was just in the dark about where Hella was. So later, when they returned to the house, Dawn recalls seeing a large grapefruit-sized dark red stain on the carpet, which was subsequently removed, like you remember. Armed with this new information, police officers haul ass to the Silver (laughs) Bridge. (laughs) Turns out, Richard isn't who they thought he was. Surprise. Yeah. Their search around the area turned up an envelope addressed to Hello Crafts, pieces of bone and tissue, a human nail, and a chipped tooth. Evidently, Richard, who maintains his innocence at this point, tells Hello's brothers, let them dive. There's no body. It's gone. Imagine. Really sounds like an innocent man yeah. to me. Um, after they searched the water, they that like runs under the bridge they found um a chainsaw with the serial number that is scratched off that had blood tissue and hair fragments on it so like at this point the serial number being scratched off it doesn't really help them right now because they yes they think it was richard but they have no way to really connect that to him yet yeah they can't really link it to him so they ask richard to take a lie detector test and the polygraph examiner examiner admits that he passed but with very little emotion so they call henry lee to the case and this guy is just like super respected in the forensics industry he goes on to testify in oj's case and so he helps the police search richard's home on the mattress they found five tiny stains that later proved to be blood an antigen test revealed that the blood was type o positive and the blood was circulation blood meaning a blood vessel had to be injured this was like no period stain, girls. <laughs> no, no <laughs> definitely not. They fully ruled that out, so don't even think that. <laughs> and after some interviewing of the scene, a six-inch blood stain was spotted on the side of the bed, consistent with a blow to the head. The bathroom towels had been recently washed, and when tested with a liquid chemical called orthotodaline, it's OTO for short, it was a solution, and it turned out that the towels had been soaked with blood. So the chainsaw that I had mentioned earlier that seemed like a dead end um, because the serial number was scratched off, 
uh, forensic experts were actually able to use this like chemical solution that basically just eroded the scratches and revealed the serial number. Like so that cool. sounds like magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they're able to figure out that Richard owned the chainsaw. Um, every single one of the 2000 hairs found on the chainsaw and at the river were examined under the microscope and the hair the hairs seemed to be cut but not with scissors um compared to the he- the hair on Hella's hairbrush they were able to draw a match um the nail polish that was on the fingernail fragment that they found was also analyzed against a bottle on Hella's nightstand that turned up to be a match as well i mean what luck i know like the exact one that she just had on her nightstand like she probably had like ten right more. Right, she probably just redid her nails like recently. Yeah. So, um, still, however, this yeah. like doesn't necessarily prove that Hella is dead. Exactly, and without a body, the team of forensic experts have this huge burden to prove that she didn't just disappear, but that she had in fact died. So the experts on the case figured if they could just prove that Hella was put into that wood chipper, then they could also potentially prove that it would have killed her. So they decided to do an experiment by getting the same model of the wood chipper and putting a pig through it to see what it would do to the pig bones. And I know this sounds really gross and it just seems completely random, but by doing this, it would actually give them an idea of where her body went after being put in. It would also show them the chipper's unique signature cuts. So the blades basically make this like specific pattern. So if they could match the ones produced on the pig bones to the debris found at the river, then they could prove Hella was put in the wood chipper. Mm. The bone fragments found at the scene were then looked at in depth and it was a match. They also put the bone fragments under a microscope and they could see small grooves that were formed by blood vessels, something that only human bones could have. Skull fragments from the side of the head were also able to be identified. These proved to be the most important because if you are suffering a blow to the head this way, it probably does mean that you are dead. Um, Again, the bone fragments were tested and it was revealed that they belonged to an individual with type O positive blood. Hmm. Exactly the type (laughs) of blood that runs through (laughs) Hella's veins. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's just cool. Forensics is cool. It's crazy how they could get all this small stuff and be like, no, it was was exactly you on this day. Yeah, they're piecing together the puzzle that he tried to literally shred to pieces. Richard Crafts was then promptly arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. He was held on a $750,000 bond and his three kids were removed from his custody and put into the custody of his sister in Westport, if you remember. So here's what we think went down. After putting the kids to bed, Hella changed into her favorite blue nightshirt and went to her room. There she got into an argument with Richard. He hits her over the head with his police flashlight and killed her. Richard then puts Hella's body into the freezer and cleans up as much of the scene as possible. Dawn, the nanny, returned home around 2 a.m. and went straight to bed. Early in the morning, Richard took the kids and Dawn to his sister's house, rented the largest commercial wood chipper he could find, and a U-Haul using his credit card. Like, what an idiot. (laughs) Crafts transported the remains, a chainsaw, and some wood to the river. He was then spotted by the snowplow driver around 3 a.m. 
Richard dismembered Hella's frozen body and put the wood through the chipper along with the body's pieces. This meant that there would be, like, very little blood at the scene because of her being frozen and the wood going through it also. Yeah, so he was smart enough to throw in some wood in there not make it seem too crazy, but it just makes me think, like, the fight could have been about the phone bill, you know, because of the mail that was found and, like, went through the wood chipper too. And if you remember, he was calling other women, so maybe Hella was confronting him about it and then a fight broke out? Like, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's such a good point. I feel like she was definitely confronting him with the mail because, like, if you think about it, why would she have a piece of mail in her nightshirt pocket? It, like, just yeah. it doesn't seem like something you would, like, organically keep in your nightshirt pocket. Yeah, if you didn't have it with you at the time that, you know, she was murdered. Right. You wouldn't just keep old mail in your nightshirt. <laughs> but Richard does have two trials because the first that was held at the Danbury Superior Court ended in a mistrial, and that was in 1987. The second trial was moved to New London, where his guilty verdict was rendered in 1989. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison, and this case ended up being the first murder conviction in Connecticut without the body, like we said before. And in 1993, he did try to appeal it with no success, Avi, but he ended up serving a shorter sentence because of an old sentencing law called statutory good time. And... This just ba- this basically allowed for extensive time to be taken off a prisoner's sentence for good behavior. So Richard got a disciplinary infraction from having contraband in his jail cell, but still somehow got out early. It didn't even affect his good time. And, yeah, no, frustrating bond belief. And on top of this, he was credited for the three years that he spent between sentencing and his conviction. Although this case was up for revision, they need to apply the law that was in place at the time of sentencing. So today, Richard is out and in a transitional housing program for veterans in Bridgeport. The most recent articles I could find were in January and February, and they said he would be released in July 2020. But I found nothing more recent, so I'm not sure where his housing stands now, and especially considered COVID. Right. This case has been featured so many times within pop culture. Oh, totally. Um, It inspired the first episode ever of Forensic Files because of the groundbreaking forensic science that they were able to use in the state's case. Um, It also, like, inspired the Coen brothers to make the movie Fargo. I mean, it's not... The movie Fargo is not about this case, but it kind of gave them the idea, and I'm not going to have any spoilers because that's a very good movie, but... (laughs) um, And it was even made into an episode of Law & Order... Criminal intent. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod, Twitter at the Chalkline Pod, and be sure to check out our website. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story. Mm-hmm.